Well, good morning, friends. Good morning. It is a joy to be back with you. You still have your Bible open to Revelation chapter 7. If you don't, then it's a good time to open it. We're picking up with where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We're talking about we're still in the throne room of heaven. We're talking today about the 144,000. You'll find them in Revelation 7, 1 to 8 that my friend Keith, hey, thank you, uh, my friend Keith read just a minute ago. There's a lot of conversation about our friends, the 144,000. Who are they is the most popular question. Who are those 144,000? I'm not going to tip my hand just yet, but I'm telling you now, we're going to get to some answers in this, I hope, as we walk through this. Let's start by saying this one, one thing very conclusively. God is in charge. This much we know. God is in charge. His authority stands supremely. So what I want you to do before we do anything else, take out your note paper and just scratch somewhere, type it into your phone, maybe type it in there and say this, God is in charge of everything and always will be. There's never a time when he will not be in charge. That's where we enter into chapter 7. God's authority, the winds of judgment are in the hands of God and his angels. They're not in the hands of evil. I don't know about you, but it's been interesting these last several weeks as we've watched what's happened in Ukraine and watched what's happened in other parts of the world, and it's easy to think evil is winning, that somehow we're losing and that, that evil has already, already received the victory. I want to tell you today, my friends, it's just not so. You'll see it right there in verses 1 and 2. Let me read it for you again. After this, after what he saw in chapter 6, that is. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or, any, or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God. Let's be clear, my friends. God is the master of the winds. This right there is good news. Another thing we can say for sure, since Chapter 7 is in the throne room of heaven, and God holds back the winds. It's not in West Texas. I don't know if you noticed the wind this week. Maybe you did. Goodness gracious, how could you not? Nearly picked all of us up and blew us all away. When you come to that moment, when you come to that moment where you're like, I'm so windblown, and not necessarily just by the meteorological wind, but by the wind of change, the wind of of unforeseen circumstances, the wind of brokenness, the things that would push us out of our trust for God. Let us rejoice today, friends, that God is still in charge. He is the master of the winds, just like he was in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, they're in the bow of the boat. The disciples are terrified, and what does Jesus do? He stands up and he proclaims stillness for the winds, and they stop. Friends, this this is the master of the winds. It's not unusual that we would see such a thing. It's a standard feature in apocalyptic literature like Revelation that we would see the winds as an agent of God's judgment. Daniel chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 29. When we see those, we see how God uses weather to accomplish his purposes. We see it in Noah in chapters Genesis 6 through 8. We see that God is the one holding those winds back. Now, when we think about winds, it's easy for us in West Texas, but take a look at this picture that I brought with me of what wind can do. 
When we see it that way, we recognize its power because we've seen it before. We see how it acts. We see how it, how it pushes things along. We see the damage that it can do. I want to encourage you today. What we can't see is who sent it, whose authority it operates on. Where is the wind going in such a hurry? We can say this much for sure. Our God is in charge of all the winds, even if you didn't want them. I was thinking about that this week because as the winds were blowing outside of my office and outside of my home, I was laughing to myself knowing that we were coming to talk about this. And I was like, Lord, this is a, a microcosm. What would it be like if we did not have wind? So just for fun, I Googled that. When will the wind stop? Meteorologists that I read said this, it would be catastrophic. The things that the winds hold aloft would come falling down upon us and possibly create an unsustainable environment for life. We need the wind. And yet when it pushes through in angry and violent ways, we don't necessarily want it. Here's where we can rejoice, though. Because our God is the God of all winds, it doesn't matter where the wind came from. It doesn't matter where it's going. It doesn't matter what's in the wind or what it moves along. Our God stands supremely over it. And because we can be certain of that, we can rest securely. We can afford to trust the master of the winds. If you're in the middle of a storm, now I want you to rejoice today that our God is in the middle of it with you. His sheltering hand stands by you. It may not feel like it, but emotions can be deceiving when you are facing the wind. Rejoice that the master of the wind is in it with you. In verse 2, we see that an angel from the east comes with a seal in his hand. He is commissioned by God and arrives with that. From the east, from the direction of the sun, from the direction of the wise men, direction of Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, the direction is most certainly not accidental. Now the question begs, what does this seal look like? What does it consist of? How will we recognize it if and when we see it? None of those questions are answered for us. Not here in Revelation 7, not later in Revelation 14 when the topic arises again. Then again, neither is the mark of the beast, the opposite symbol, described any further than in Revelation 13. Friends, I want you to see this picture of a signet ring that I brought with me. Take a look at it as it comes up on the screen. I love this picture. When I found it, I just went, yes, this is exactly what I'm looking for. When you see this, you don't have to ask, does this belong to somebody specific, if, they, if you're used to seeing them wear it. You know it because it's so distinctive, it's so unusual, not unlike the class rings that we wear, either from our high school or our college, we wear those, not unlike the wedding bands that we wear, those are a little more generic, but let's rejoice today that this kind of signet ring has with it an identifying factor. We can know that when we see that signet, when we see that stamp, when we see that seal, we know who they belong to. Now, this Mark, 
that is left on the forehead. All we really know about it is something of what it says. I'm going to jump ahead of myself to Revelation 14. But it bears repeating here so that we might know what we have to look forward to. We learn that the mark, the seal leaves on the forehead is this, the lamb and the father's name. We'll wear his mark. We may not know everything about that mark or what it looks like, how we'll get it, but we know this, the sealing of God's people will mark them as his own. And they will be protected because people will recognize that's who that one belongs to. Oh, man, this is good news. It means that because of the mark that I wear, sealed by the power and the authority of God, who is the master of all winds and holds them back or lets them blow, that we, friends, can rejoice because our God has marked us as his own. Can you say that today about your own life? Today, friends, I want you to look within you. And I want you to ask yourself this. Am I marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit? Am I wearing his name? Am I identified with him? I ask you this because I want you to make sure that you are there. So that when that day comes, when... We are being sealed that you will be among us. The only way to get there isn't through being well-connected, not through doing good works or giving money to a church or a ministry. It's as simple as asking Jesus to be the Lord and Master of your life. It's not hard, but it's anything but easy. For it calls you to a whole new lifestyle, one that takes you far from where you are in order that you might be who he wants you to be. This, this mark that we will wear is reflective of God's command. At God's command, he will give a declaration to delay the judgments until all of God's people can be sealed. See it in the last half of verse 2 in chapter 7. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm sea and earth, saying, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God. Let's rejoice today that angels are commanded by God's authority. Now, we won't pick on anybody, but I've been to some of your homes and I know that many of you have a great fondness for angels and their statues. You keep them all over the house and that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with it. But let's be clear, not all of them are the lovely harp-dwelling angels that we put on our mantles or in our display cases. Some of them are for the purpose of judgment. And they will come with wrath. But friends, rejoice today that they are under God's authority too. And they have a purpose. And the purpose is the sealing of God's servants. Now, let's pause here and say their purpose, even if it is wrathful in nature, is merciful. For it is the withholding of punishment from those people. This, friends, this is a mark of mercy. Instructed by God, 
declared for his purposes and identifying God's people. They will include not just those that are around them, but all of those who are alive at that time. And let us rejoice today that that seal designates ownership, approval, and endorsement that says, this one belongs to me. John doesn't say much more than that, but I struggled with how you might understand this. The temptation arose to talk about cattle brands, that God is marking us as we would mark cows. We get a, a brand hot and we burn that mark into the flesh of that animal so that they forevermore will be identified as ours. I resisted that temptation, however, because I didn't want anybody coming up to me after church and saying, are you calling us a bunch of cows? The answer is no. However, we can be sure that we will be branded because God's people will be sealed. God's people sealed. God will seal 144,000 Jews from all the tribes of Israel. That's that section from verse 4 to verse 8. This is where I want to spend most of the rest of our time because this is where many of you came today to hear about, right? Let's pause here and say some of the things that would be instructive there wasn't time for this morning because they require a deeper dive. We'll take them up tonight at our 5 at 5. You can meet us in the chapel right out that door, right across the hall. We're going to take up this same topic tonight and see if we can dig a little deeper. Let's start here, though, with what we have this morning. The first thing we're going to have to do if we're going to understand this is to understand the number 144,000. We find this three times in the Word of God, here in Revelation 7 and twice in Revelation 14. We aren't entirely sure why it's 144,000, but perhaps we'd better ask another question first. Are all the numbers in the book of Revelation meant to be taken literally? After all, if this number is limited, then surely others must be too. Thus, only and exclusively 12 literal gates in the, the, uh, the heavenly city, 12 literal foundations, 12 literal fruits, perhaps, just maybe, if we're going to understand the number 144,000, we don't have to take it literally, because Jesus didn't seem to. When we see him draw the 12 apostles, it would make sense that if they were going to be tribal in nature, as is described here, Jesus would have made sure to have one from every tribe in his, in his apostleship. He didn't. Well, how do you know that for sure, Darren? Because he has two sets of brothers. They would have come from the same lineage. They would have not, they would have been from the same tribe. They would have not been separate. So perhaps we start with understanding the number 144,000 by seeing that is it a derivative of 12. I want you to rejoice with me about the number 12. Rejoice that God sent Roger Staubach to wear it. Anybody with me there? Let me tell you, I'm lucky enough to have seen Roger play. It was a blessing. But when I see the number 12, I think of Roger Staubach. That's just how God wired me. 
Maybe, though, maybe we can expand ourselves a little bit and look through Scripture and see where else the number 12 pops up. Twelve tribes in the, ancient, in the Old Testament. Twelve stones on the high priest's breastplate to represent those 12 tribes. Twelve apostles that Jesus chose. 24 elders in the book of Revelation. 120 elders in the book of Acts. These all reflect leadership qualities, leadership capacity. Perhaps the number 144,000 reflects something of how God is going to use them as leaders going forward. Now, if you take my perspective along with me, then he will use these 144,000 to proclaim the gospel of his soon second coming. Now let's move on to understanding the tribes. Let's say conclusively, we cannot fully appreciate what the New Testament has to say about the future that we enjoy without understanding the history of the tribes of Israel. Understanding the tribes means we got to go back all the way to Genesis. In Genesis 35, we find ourselves with our friend Jacob, the one who will be renamed Israel after an encounter with God. Jacob has sons, and each of them become the forebearers of the tribes. These tribes are still the key linkage to understanding Jewish genealogy. You might say, well, that's not that significant to me, Darren. Oh, no. Think about this. The tribe of Judah has Jesus as its most notable descendant. I think that's pretty significant. And yet, when we look at this list of tribes, it's different. It causes us to be unsettled if we're familiar with the, the normal listing. Here's what I mean. You'll notice that Judah is listed first. Huh. He's not the oldest. Reuben is. Reuben isn't first, though. He's second. And there's a lot of reasons we might be unsettled by the order of this list, but let's pause here to say there are 18 different variations of the listing of the 12 found in the Old Testament, so maybe we shouldn't get too tore off about that. Here's another one. You'll notice if you know the tribes of Israel, there's one missing. Actually, one and a half. The tribe of Dan is absent completely from this list. Likewise, the tribe of Ephraim, the half-tribe that he shares with his brother Manasseh, we don't see either one of them in this list. Why is that? Perhaps it's because Dan, according to, to Genesis 49, he has a curse put on by his father, Jacob. You are the, have the qualities of a serpent. History and tradition tell us that our friend Irenaeus, a church father in the late first, early second centuries, said that historically the Antichrist would arise from the tribe of Dan. Maybe that's why he's not listed. Ephraim is a, another question that we have. Why is he not in the list? In Hosea chapter 4, we find the tribe of Ephraim is set aside as an idolatry, a tribe given to idolatry. Manasseh is included, but Ephraim is left out. It's an interesting 
concern, but not one that makes a whole lot of difference. Here's one that really causes us to scratch our heads. The tribes are not of equal size. They are not of equal strength. Judah is an enormous tribe. Benjamin, a very small one. And yet, according to this list, each one of them will be granted 12,000 across the board. More like the U.S. Senate than the U.S. House. What are we to make of that? Quite frankly, we're not sure. What we can say conclusively, though, is God does know. And because God knows and he's the one doing the sealing, maybe I just better surrender all of my misunderstandings to him and let him deal with it. Sort of like one of the views of, of how we understand the, the end times. There's amillennialism, there's, there's premillennialism, there's postmillennialism. Well, maybe we just need to adopt the panmillennialist view. Pan-millennialist means it'll all pan out in the end, and I can just let God deal with it as he will. I don't know about that, but I know this. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time worried about why God chose these 144,000 or these tribes and these names because it's his tribes and he can do with it as he sees fit. Here's the question that you really want to, want to sink your teeth into. The Bible never says only 144,000 people will go to heaven. Never says only 144,000 people will be saved. Bible never says that. Quite frankly, it's a good thing. Let's just say that there are 7.5 billion people in the world, and let's just say that God is going to take that 144,000 from everybody that's alive today. This is just pre pre presumption, and we're just doing this for uh, our, our purposes here then what are the percentages of you being one of those out of all of the people on the earth? Two one-thousandths of a point. In other words, not very good. Or to put it another way, out of every 44,000 people, one of them will make it to heaven. Wow. That means only five people from Midland. That's pretty extraordinary. And then let's back up a little further and say we've had 2,000 years of Christian history that preceded us with some amazing and remarkable people who lived godly, Christ-honoring lives. There's no seats on the bus left if it's only 144,000. But we don't think that way. And you can safely set it aside too. Now others have, our friends Jehovah's Witness, they believe that the anointed class will go to heaven to rule with Christ. The rest of us are among the other sheep or the great crowd. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that is the Mormons, they believe they're the ordained priests who will prepare, be prepared to serve heaven for all eternity, thus regular folks won't be there. Seventh-day Adventists used to believe that the 144,000 are those who are observing the proper Jewish Sabbath when the Lord comes back. But in order for that to be true, each one of them has to belong to a Jewish tribe and be limited to the 12,000 that's within that. Some of you may remember some years ago, there was a, a lady who was a part of one of these groups. She popped up and said, I'm one of the 144,000. Oh man, the winds went crazy with people saying, wait a minute, that means somebody had to fall out. I want you to rejoice today that our God fears no such a limitation. So let's take a minute to try to understand the identity of these 144,000. Let's say what we can about that and let God sort it out from there. 
Here are two options that we have. One, they are Jews dedicated to serving God. Thus, God will protect them and spare them from judgment and death. They will proclaim the gospel in the darkest of hours. That's our first option. Two, this number is symbolic. It represents all those in Christ who have been grafted in to God's family. It doesn't mean that Christianity and those of us in Christ have replaced Israel. Rather, it means we've joined them. These two options are not necessarily mutually exclusive. We could put the two together and create still yet a third one. I want you to rejoice today, though, that we don't have to figure it out. See, God has wired me in such a way that I like to try to figure things out. I'll spend way too much time sorting through it to try to pin it down, but I want you to rejoice today that we don't have to. These are God's. At just the right time, he will sort it out with or without my help, with or without my permission, and he will do it in just the way that he's chosen to. I want to give you three things to take home with you. And let these, th these three things resonate with you. One, when uncertainty reigns, stand securely on God's sovereign power. Uncertainty. You know, if we've learned anything about uncertainty, it's that it's uncertain. If we've learned anything about uncertainty, it's that we can count on it to be uncertain. And it gets no clearer as we go along in some cases. We'd like to think that more time would make it clear, but that isn't always so. When we find ourselves in that moment, here's what we do. We sink ourselves down to the thing that is stable and secure, which is God's sovereign power, who at just the right time will raise us up. Friends, just because you're in the middle of a moment of uncertainty, don't let that define God's power for you. I've heard people say, well, if God were really powerful, he wouldn't let this uncertainty be in my life. I'd love to say that's true, but it's just not. It reflects a very limited understanding to who God is and what he can do. Rather, in your uncertainty, stand securely on what you can be certain of. God's sovereign power. Here's the second thing I want you to take home. When, when circumstances unsettle, then rest certainly on God's stable power. Nothing happens without his command. Nothing happens without his command. So when the winds blow or the earth shakes, we can be certain that our God stands above it and that I can rest because I know he's in charge. It doesn't necessarily mean that I like the choice he's made, but it certainly means that I can trust it because I know that God redeems everything he allows. What he allows, he'll redeem. I can't necessarily be sure I'll know how or I understand how but then again, God didn't make me like he made himself in every way. He made me to trust him. And that brings us to the last thing. When we don't know, 
Trust that God does. Can I encourage you today to do that very thing? Trust that God does. Can I encourage you today, my friends, to let your heart be governed by that? Because there's going to be things you're going to come up against, and I'm sure for most all of you it's already been there. There's going to be things that you aren't going to know. And they're going to be important, maybe even overwhelming. They're going to be things that are significant. They're going to be things that are difficult, and you're going to want to know. But when you don't know, trust that God does. And let your hands open as you hold it up to him and say, I don't know, but you do. I'm holding it up so that you can do what you will with it, because I know you're trustworthy. See, to get there, it means we have to start before then. We have to start with a presumption that God is good. We have to start with the presumption that Jesus wants good things for us, even if good things aren't always what he brings. We have to begin with the presumption that his death on the cross was for me, for you, that his resurrected power is all that I will need to carry myself through from now until he comes to get me, either through my death or his return. So here's what I'm inviting you to do, compelling, if necessary, even pleading with you to do. Call on the name of Jesus as your Lord and Master. This is the day God has given you for that very thing. Call on the name of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's simple, but not easy. It means admitting you need a Savior, first of all, and then you're a sinner, just like I am just like I was. I called on the name of Jesus. Jesus, I'm a sinner. There's no good in me. I can't trade for my salvation, but you died to bring it to me anyway. Will you save me, Jesus? Come into my life. Be in charge of all things. If you're in this building and you would like to do that today, then here's what I want you to do. As soon as this service is over, Come meet me right outside in the Welcome Center, right out here. I'll be waiting for you, hoping and praying that you'll come talk to us. If you're not in this building, then pick up your phone and text the name Jesus, the 3150092. That number is open 24 hours a day. We may not answer you when you text right away, but we will answer you. Oh, friends, this is the most consequential decision that you'll make not just today, but for your eternity forward. You see, that ceiling of God's people, it's coming. You may not want it to come, but it's coming just the same. And when it comes, it'll be too late to say, well, I, I, I want to change camps. I want to miss out on hell and go to heaven instead. Make that decision today and let the Spirit of God speak into your life. Pray with me, won't you? And now unto you, Lord Jesus, the Master and Lord over all things, we say to you today, we love you. We're grateful for what you've done for us. We're grateful for how you have moved in our lives. And we thank you today, Jesus. 
that you are still in charge. My prayer today, Jesus, is for those who are listening, whether they're in this building or not, that they would respond to you, Jesus, not because of anything eloquent I might have said, but because your Holy Spirit is drawing them. I pray, Jesus, that today would be their day for salvation. If by chance, Lord, they've already come to know you, but they haven't done what Annalie and Jewel did at the beginning of this service, they've never been baptized, then today let them find me, Jesus, to say, I need to be baptized. If they're walking alone and they need a church family, then send them to talk with us about how to, how to be a part of what you are doing here. I'm grateful, Jesus, that you are good and that I can trust you, that you are one who is worthy of my trust. And so, Jesus, today, right here and right now, will you, Lord Jesus, show your power? This is all we're promised, so help us to use it well. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.